Hello, ABF family. We are so excited that you have chosen to join us on our online service. Well, we would love to connect with you and support you in any way we can. So go ahead and text us at 97000 and let us know what's going on in your life. Let us know how we can be praying for you. Man, our, our staff team loves to support you. We love to pray for you. So make sure that we hear from you this week. Well, for those of you that live locally, man, we'd love for you to come out to the church and get involved. There's so many ways that you can get involved here, jumping into a Bible study, a service project, or one of our children's events. Man, check out our website at agorabible.org to find out more information. Well, our ongoing ministries are only made possible through your generous financial support. So if you'd like to give a donation, uh, go onto our website and hit the Give tab. Well, I hope you are excited to dive into God's Word. Well, before we begin, let's just bow for a word of prayer. Father God, we just invite your Spirit to work in and through us. God, we love you so much, and we are just... Awesome. It's awesome that we can open up your word and that you speak to us. So Lord, as the word is presented, may we have ears and hearts that are open, ready to hear from you. We love you so much and we thank you for your goodness in our lives. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, greetings, church, and welcome to another online service. And uh, I want to especially just uh, greet our, our dads listening today. I want to wish you a happy Father's Day. So thankful for each one of you and uh, the investment that you give into your families, into your kids, into your spouses. Uh, just grateful for you, making sure uh, you feel celebrated uh, here today. Uh, well, we're uh, jumping in and continuing in our series called Powerful Prayers and uh, just looking at a, a different approach, a different story here today, but uh, just starting the conversation, I was thinking this week about one of the things that you do as a father, as a parent, is you're trying to, as you're working with your kids, is you're gradually handing off more and more responsibility to them and incrementally kind of stepping away just to provide a level of freedom so they can fail, so they can succeed, so they can get used to doing things uh, on their own. And uh, as I was thinking about today's text, I'm like, that's exactly what Jesus was doing with his disciples. He's, uh, he's trying to give them opportunity to succeed and fail. For, for us as, a, as parents, are probably our most recent uh, opportunity for this was trying to help our two uh, more recent drivers in the family figure out how to have responsibility in that arena of their life. I uh, remember, man, just like it was yesterday, uh, just the watching my son first and then watching my daughter the next, uh, driving away for the very first time where I was no longer in the car. And really, I was kind of replaying in my head how many, during their permit season of life, how many near-death experiences uh, they had. And so watching them drive away on their own was just like, oh man, talk about powerful prayers. Definitely leaned into uh, faith there for sure. Well, that's where we're kind of at in the account of Jesus with his disciples. He's only just a, a couple of months away from departure. And so in that time period, he's providing more and more opportunities for the disciples to operate and to minister independent of him. Up until this point, then they've been able to minister uh, by sight. They've seen him, they've seen him move, seen him work. Now they're having to move towards a life of what does it look like to minister 
by faith. It's a very different look. And really it's one that we can relate with because it's what we're called to do every single day that we represent Jesus Christ presently. So we're here in this account. We're about to see that there's some uh, last minute or last season important lessons for the disciples to learn. I think there's a lot we can glean from uh, about uh, prayer, about faith, about trusting God, about his rescue, about our dependence on him. So many lessons. Let me just pray before we explore this uh, unique story. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this chance to spend some time in your word and allow it to speak to us, to expand our understanding of faith, of prayer, of how you work, how you operate, our, how our relationship is intended to be uh, working with you, God. I ask that you would speak to us uh, very directly as it relates to these topics today, that there be a, a nugget that you want to uh, seal in our hearts, even coming out of this time. We believe that you can do that, and so we're inviting that in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, this is a, a story that I was like, man, I, I don't know necessarily how it relates, but it's one that's stuck in my mind for a number of years. And actually I was talking to Adrian and I was like, well, what's a, what's a prayer that you think would be a, a, a powerful one? Maybe it relates to dads. And this one definitely does because it's a, uh, what I describe in our title here, a, a desperate dad coming to Jesus for help. And so we're going to start reading this account in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29, but we'll start in verse uh, 14 and then work our way through. It says, and when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. And he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. All right, well, stop there for a little explanation of where we're at in the count of Jesus's life. First, if you're trying to piece together the order of things, this is right after Jesus is coming back from the Mount of Transfiguration, where they have a, a powerful and glorious encounter with God the Father. He's there with the closest, his closest inner circle, Peter, James, and John. is an encounter with Moses, an encounter with Elijah. It's a really powerful scene. And in that time, he had left opportunity for the disciples to continue the ministry that he had been doing. So basically a, a stepping away, seeing how they're going to do. And he arrives, he gets back, and he finds a, a, a bit of chaos. We're told that he founds a, a, finds a whole crowd there, that he, there's arguing going, there's a, a, a degree of chaos. And it's interesting because I, as I was thinking about this, I mean, he's got to be feeling like a, a, every dad feels when he's like, man, can't I leave you alone for five minutes? My wife and I were just talking about one of the examples we've had of that with our kids. I remember when we were moving from uh, the townhome here in Agora to our uh, now home in Thousand Oaks. And in the middle of the move, we got distracted moving boxes and we had our kids upstairs and we had taken out some of the screens that we had to replace. And we came back upstairs to find, I mean, it hadn't even been five minutes. We came upstairs to find all three of our kids on the roof of the townhome throwing rocks at people below. 
And we're just like, what happened? Like, what in the world is going on here? Now, this is obviously a much more serious event that's taking place. This time we're, we're seeing that, that uh, what's going on is that a father has come and he's uh, pleading, he's, he's coming to the disciples trying to find some relief. Basically, if you think about as he's describing his son being demon-possessed as a parent, any a, a father, mother, really any parent can uh, just uh, have some degree of compassion for this man. Can you imagine having a son who, who you love, who's precious to you, being possessed by a demon? Literally to the point that the demon is, is taking over control, where the son no longer has control. We're told uh, what that looks like when that happens, that it throws them to the ground. I'm sure that's painful. He'd foam at the mouth. He'd grind his teeth. He'd become rigid. Kind of a uh, horrible, horrifying scene. I'll tell you what I mean. I, I lose sleep over my kids' grades. I can't imagine if you had a son or a daughter that was demon-possessed and is dealing with this for a long season of time. You get the sense of that. Well, both then and now, we realize that we're surrounded in a world that has, man, serious needs around us. People that are dealing with stuff that is heavy. And in this case, it seems like the heaviest possible. We're told of what takes place and it's not exactly a positive account. And you wonder why the disciples were unable to cast out this demon. Earlier in the book of, of Mark, in chapter 6 verse, the, uh, 6, verse 13, we're told that they cast out many demons. Why is it that they weren't able to do anything here? At this point, we don't know exactly. We can only speculate the possibility that maybe they had become too self-sufficient. Truth is, a lot of times, if we're not careful, we can just get so busy operating in the flesh and just presuming on God's hand moving in our life and completely forgetting to even ask assuming that he's going to show up and he's going to demonstrate his power. We just move as if he didn't need to be asked. Well, here Jesus finds them unable to solve the circumstance. Find it interesting as he finds them arguing with the scribes, most likely the scribes are giving them a hard time for their failure here. He asks them what's taking place and notice that both the scribes and the disciples are silent. Probably the scribes are silent because they're embarrassed about past failures and attempts at backing Jesus into a corner. The disciples aren't embarrassed about past things. They're embarrassed about their present inability to solve this situation, to solve this experience. So the desperate father fills them in, him in on all the details of what's going on. I imagine he's at this point feeling pretty discouraged. He shows up hoping for help and has definitely not found it. He's been uh, helpless. He's feeling helpless at this point. So here's how the story continues. Verse 19, and he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. All right, continues with the intensity. First, the intensity that Jesus brings to the situation. First thing you notice 
that he's, uh, you get the sense that he's expected that the disciples at this point, at this stage in their development, should have been at a place where they could have solved this without his assistance, or I shouldn't say without his assistance, I should say without his presence, without him being there. He refers to them as a faithless generation. Basically, the lack of trust would have been a hard thing for Jesus to handle. Even imperfect people don't like to be distrusted. He's like, man, why aren't you placing your trust in me? Especially when Jesus has a a perfect track record of faithfulness. He says this, how long am I to bear with you? In other words, man, how long do I have to deal with your pint-sized faith? And in this, he's not necessarily trying to rub their nose in it, but trying to awaken their faith, trying to stir the pot, trying to get them to see what's actually, what ingredients are missing here. We're told after Jesus' request that they brought the boy to him. It's interesting because that account, that's probably the best idea they've had up until this part of the story. Just here, hey, bring him to Jesus. We can't solve it. We can't fix it. We need him to intervene. Really, if you think about it, what is our role in any of this, even present day ministry, that's the exact same description of what we're intended with the world. We're intended to bring people to Jesus for rescue. We're not, we're not charged to try to solve the outside world's false thinking. We're not charged to try to change their behavior. I can't tell you how many times on, on Facebook I see people trying to argue or debate with the secular world about their flawed thinking. Our invitation is come to Jesus. He's the one that can rescue. He's the one that will convict. He's the one that will change. For us to get learn from this example to just bring people to Jesus. Here we see how extreme the situation is. Look at the response. Even at Jesus's presence, that this kid starts convulsing and foaming at the mouth. It sounds like a scene from a horror film. See how Jesus would respond. And Jesus asked the father, how long has he been, has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if, if, you, can, if you can't, if you can, exclamation point, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father and the child cried out and said, I believe Help my unbelief. Continue here, just thinking through what's taking long, uh, t- what's taking place. First off, I had questions the first time reading through this. And why does he, th- this kid's on the ground, he's convulsing, he's foaming at the mouth. And you're just like, why does Jesus take the time to do, ask all of these questions? You're like, you're not asking for information that he didn't already know. But what we do know about Jesus is that he is an intimate and personal God. He's sympathetic. He meets us in our place of need. He wants to walk through the experience with this man. 
So he asks some questions and the man explains, man, this is not a, this has been something all the way from his youth. It's thrown him into the water. It's thrown him into fire. It's interesting to see what the enemy's uh, intent is in our life. He's literally trying to kill this kid. For us to be enticed by the enemy, it's actually strange when you actually start to see behind the curtain what the enemy's intent is in the life of a person. It's unbelievable. So he indicates him not just his son needing rescue, but he also includes himself in the request. Notice what he says. He says, help us. Help us, not just help my son. The father's at a place in this process where he's recognizing I desperately need help as well. The original word used for help us here means to run to the aid of someone. So basically he's saying to Jesus, man, please uh, run to my aid, run to my rescue. I need you. Really, if you think about it, at the end of our rope is exactly where Jesus has room to move and to work. And that's what we see here. It's interesting though, seeing the man's request. He said, if you can do something about this. It's interesting. You see that this man isn't necessarily uh, noted. If you're going to give him a grade for his level of faith, it would definitely not be a high grade. It's interesting. Jesus repeats what he says. Jesus responds, if you can, In other words, are you serious? Have you not heard? Have you not seen? It's kind of like his disciples. You're like, man, how is it that you're doubting still at this point in the process? But he asks the question, but then he corrects him with an important message and a statement and also a challenge. All things are possible with God. Really, it's a message not just for the audience of that day. It's a message for anyone present day that has something in their life that they believe is bigger than they can handle. They believe it's out of control. Nothing can be done. There's nothing that can solve this situation. It's a wonderful verse to go back to, a reminder that nothing is impossible with our God. Nothing is outside of the realm and his ability to influence and impact It's an important thing. I love to see the father's response here as he's being corrected about if I can, as he's he's being reminded that all things are possible. He says something brilliant. I actually love this statement. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. He recognizes the coexistence of faith and unbelief within himself. And it's interesting to see how that works even in our own lives. We can have the exact same issue where we believe, but then doubt kind of sneaks in. It can all even go on a hour by hour, moment by moment basis. We can be at a place where you're just like, yes, I'm clinging to him. He's in control. I've turned it over, but then doubt sneaks in. And so here's the important thing for us to understand that faith is not absent of doubt, but it's the decision to trust God in the midst of that doubt. We're, we're to trust him in the seemingly impossible situations. He basically is humbly asking Jesus to fill the gap between his faith and his doubt. Man, I'll tell you what, that's a healthy place to be, to come to him. And he says, help me to believe. It's actually the same exact word that was used earlier. Remember where it means to run towards? He's saying, run to help 
my unbelief. It's this picture and understanding that the only way that he's going to believe, the only way that this is possible is if Jesus is in the middle of it. It's an appropriate request if you think about it. Hebrews 12, 2 tells us that he's the author and the perfecter of our faith. Our faith stems from him. It's a gift from God. But then he's the one that develops and shapes our gift. I love this reminder that we don't have to show up and pretend to have some kind of an amazing faith that we don't have. He's willing to accept us where we're at. Man, just show up with the little amount of faith that you have and he can take it from there. It's not dependent on us. He doesn't have the expectation of perfect faith. In fact, he's not just waiting for the spiritually elite to bring their requests to God. Instead, he wants to work and move in all of our lives. Continue to see how Jesus responds. Verse 25. And when Jesus saw, saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, Come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Can you imagine being in this audience, watching this play out? Talk about dramatic fashion. Do you think anybody that was there would ever forget this event in the remainder of their days? This is an encounter with God Almighty taking on directly confronting an evil spirit in this poor, poor boy's life. We're told that he, Jesus acts immediately. He tells them to never enter him again. It's not just a partial temporary rescue. This is a complete de deliverance. This is someone that was lost, that had no hope, and God's like, all right, I'm going to intervene. I'm going to step into your situation. Basically, it's the gospel message. For those of us that are lost and couldn't ever fix our circumstances, God came in the form of a man, provided rescue by death on a cruel Roman cross, rose again on a third day, providing a way to have your relationship with God restored. This is the rescue plan that we still cling to today and is demonstrated to this father and a son. I like what it describes there. It says, after this whole event, it was so traumatic that it left this boy lifeless to the point that, that he seemed like, man, people were like, man, he's dead. He's gone. It's over. He's beyond reach. I find it interesting that that's when, again, Jesus steps in, grabs him by his hand, lifts him up, gives him new life, a fresh start, a new beginning. It's a great reminder for those of us that are beat up and worn out and abused and are just feel like, man, I just can't even move forward. Someone that's crippled in that place, Jesus is saying, just take my hand. I want to lift you from that. I don't want you to be bound in this place. We'll see the, how it plays out on the other side of this event, what the disciples learned from this whole experience. I imagine it would have marked their memory as well. Verse 28, and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything 
but prayer. It's an interesting description here if you think about it, this teachable moment of the disciples that are trying to figure out what does it look like to live by faith? When Jesus isn't there, how do we move forward? So they ask, why couldn't we do it? And his response is, man, this only happens through prayer. As we already saw, they couldn't do it on their own. Jesus had to intervene. And the same concept is true for us today. We can't do anything on our own as it relates to the supernatural. Prayer is the lifeline that connects us to the very heart of God. Like this quote by Owen Carr, he says, a day without prayer is a boast against God. Basically, it's the idea when we don't pray, it's like saying, you know, God, I got this. I don't need you. Prayer is the humility of saying, I don't have this. I can't fix it. I need you to intervene. That's the lesson that he's teaching his disciples about prayer before he leaves. You were never intended to do any of this on your own. So the question is, how does faith play into this whole equation? Because you, you hear that described, you hear confusion around that. What does that look like? I find it interesting. This account of this event actually takes place in Mark, takes place in Matthew, and also in Luke. Obviously, lessons uh, that were intended to be taught. In Matthew 17, verse 19 through 20, it actually gives us some details that aren't included in this passage in Mark that helps us even better understand how it's intended to work. Matthew 17, 19 tells us, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? You see the overlap there. He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Pause there. This is where we'll wrap up today. But what I think is powerful is as they're asking, why couldn't we do it? We obviously hear that Jesus explains that there's a prayer component to it, a calling out to him. But then he explains what our piece of it is. There's a faith component, kind of what we learned from, from that man. It doesn't, it didn't need to be a powerful faith. In fact, we have more explanation here of what the faith is supposed to look like. What comparison does he give it to? He said, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, and that, that day and age, and actually still present day, that would have been known as the very smallest possible seed that anyone could think of. It's an interesting seed because the mustard plant once planted, although it starts small, it just takes off and it can completely take over a garden. But in this context, as he's explaining our piece of the puzzle, he's like, I, I'll demonstrate all the power. I'll do the miraculous. I'm just asking for you to show up with a little bit of faith, just a tiny seed. It's a great reminder that it's not the size of our faith, but the object of our faith. You see, it's in our weakness that he shines through us. That's when he demonstrates his power. It's what we learn from this exact same lesson that we learn from this man. What did he say? He says, I believe, help my unbelief, run to my unbelief. What if, 
we started looking at some of the current mountains in our life and applying this. Not showing up with a overconfident, you know, because uh, I have faith, I'll name it, claim it, and this is mine. No, not that at all. But instead with a humility, like we learned from this desperate dad, a humility that says, I believe, help my unbelief. Man, I sure could use get, getting a new job. I believe, God, help my unbelief. Man, I was diagnosed with cancer and I don't know what the future holds. I believe, help my unbelief. My marriage is a wreck. I believe, help my unbelief. We can't seem to get pregnant. Help my unbelief. Again, I can't break out of this pattern of addiction. God, I believe, but help my unbelief. My child is living in rebellion and I don't know if they're ever going to come back to the Lord. I believe, help my unbelief. I'm just so depressed. I can't seem to get anything rolling in my life. I believe, help my unbelief. You see, that pattern of dependence is the key to the prayer formula. A lot of times people are like, well, is it saying the right things? No, it's not about saying the right things. It's about having the right heart attitude for us to show up and embrace our helplessness and call out to the one who can do the impossible is what we learn from Jesus in this account today. Let me pray as we wrap up. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this example. And it's a beautiful reminder of one, the compassionate rescuer that you are. You're not looking for the spiritual elite that have this unbelievable rock solid faith. You're willing to take this young, if, if uh, you describe as a new believer, you take him with his mustard seeds faith. And he's like, all right, I'll, I'll take it from here. I thank you for the unbelievably merciful God that you are. God, my prayer and hope is that our audience would lean into that, would call out to you for rescue, would give up on the attempts of trying to do things in their own strength, but re would remember the de dependence on you and would lean into that, God. Again, we thank you for this chance to be in your word. We praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.